Today's podcast is brought to you by Happy Life Herbals. If you're like me and are curious about the benefits of CBD and you haven't tried them before, head over to happylifeherbals.com and take a look at their products. CBD has been reported to potentially relieve symptoms of anxiety as well as other chronic pain. Check with your doctor to see if CBD may be right for you and then head on over to happylifeherbals.com If you choose one of their products and use the word Suburban, that's S-U-B-U-R-B-A-N at checkout, the Suburban Folk Podcast will receive a small portion of your purchase, which helps support the show so we can bring you more content. Also, if you have a podcast or are thinking about starting a podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you with editing, production, music, or whatever is standing in your way from getting your voice heard. Again, that's greg at suburbanfolk.com. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today, we're going to talk about all of the core topics we focus on here at the show. Health, parenting, travel, finance, but specifically from the lens of what does the future hold? We always try to bring you very specific self-improvement tips. And one way to make those as effective as possible is to be able to anticipate what might be coming in these areas of life. My guest is Rebecca Scott. She's the host of the Humans Now and Then podcast, in which she brings on subject matter experts to talk about the current state of their field, as well as predictions about what the future holds. In fact, I was a recent guest on the show talking about healthcare. Thanks, Rebecca, so much for joining the show. I am very excited to talk about the future of all things suburban When I was on your show, I realized how much the topic is just fascinating when you can speak to people that are looking into what the future may look like based on innovations that are happening now. Can you start us off by telling us about your podcast, Humans Now and Then? Yeah, happy to. And Greg, thanks for having me on. Um, So last year, I started recognizing a lot of gaps in conversations about the future. One of those gaps is in how evolving technology is impacting people. And we all can kind of feel that it's impacting us in multiple ways. So for instance, there's the thing we all notice about, you know, we walk into an elevator and everybody's got their heads down and looking at their phone. But the reality is, is that beyond just those observations, younger generations in particular are starting to lose skill in relation to communicating with with one another. Um, so many times avoid conversations, for instance, uh, by using text message and so forth. So I've got a book recommendation you can put out for your listeners as well in relation to that um, kind of that topic. But I started to realize the more conversations I heard about the future, they really focused on technical solutions or kind of like I said, sci-fi type solutions that are cool and fun and interesting to think about. But not enough conversation about how that new world that we're evolving into Will impact people. And so I actually, and I can, this is kind of a funny story. I'm actually driving with my daughter, taking her to gymnastics practice. 
and had an epiphany, right? Where I'm like, oh my God, I can do a podcast. And if the focus could be about how the evolving world impacts people. And it hit me so hard that I almost started crying. And my daughter was looking at me like, mom, what just happened? (laughs) And it was the weirdest moment. But if you've ever had a moment where you just had like a moment of inspiration, that was a big one for me. And it was kind of the reason that was kind of odd is because I'm not a big podcast listener in general. I hadn't been. I am now, I think. But I wasn't then. And so the fact that it kind of hit me and it felt right really just drove me forward in, in making it happen. And here I am with my podcast, Humans Now and Then. I've loved every minute of it. And you mentioned some books that came to mind when you're having the idea. Was it a singular book that was sort of out of the blue? Or maybe it was a journey of multiple articles, books, whatever other media that was that aha moment. And yeah, by all means, let us know what the particular book was that really inspired you. Multiple books, multiple observations, and uh, kind of a history in innovation in my personal work. So I did a lot of public speaking, um, drove a lot of innovation initiatives that really led me to think more and more about the future. So that was part of it as well. The book that I mentioned in relation to people losing their ability to conversate effectively, it's called Reclaiming Conversation. It's by a woman named Sherry Turkle, uh, amazingly brilliant woman. I believe she's got another book coming out shortly, or she's working on one now, but really focuses on how that technology is impacting how we interact with one another. And yes, that was something that really hit me hard because it really related to some of the things I observed out in the world. And as a parent, started to concern, be, be a little concerned with. So one of the things that also concerned me were, was noticing the impact that um, kind of social media was having on my kids and their desire to kind of put something out in the world about themselves that was an image they were trying to portray rather than kind of being true to who they were. And it wasn't an intention thing. It was really kind of almost fear-driven. And I wondered what the impact would be. So I did a lot of research, looked a lot of articles, because that's just kind of like what I do. (laughs) I'm curious about something. I see a challenge. I have something that I'm concerned or curious about, and I go research it. Um, My husband makes fun of me because I'll sit on the couch, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I had this idea early. I've got to learn about it. And he's like, well, let me know in two hours when you're done, you know, looking at articles, and then we'll talk. But um, I just find it, you know, vastly interesting and fascinating. And so as time evolved, I became more and more interested in those conversations. And again, recognize more and more the conversations about the future are not including enough information about how evolving technology or our evolving world impacts us and our experience. And let's stick with that conversation piece. And I have read similar things that you're mentioning. And my kids are pretty young, so I can't say what the lasting effects might be, but I can definitely say if either of them have had a significant stint watching the iPad, when you take that away, there is this weaning period, I guess you'd say, that they are very irritable and you almost have to bring them back down from that. So I can relate to that fear of what the lasting impact can be. So going along with a lot of the parenting that we talk about on my show, what is the challenges that you see for parents related to technology? Do you think that it's going to get worse or do you see 
some kind of shift that will balance out the fear of screen time and the overexposure in the social media world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'll give you my my standard disclaimer. I cannot predict the future. All I can do is project potential outcomes. So I can tell you potential outcomes in relation to parenting and family based on what I've read um, and people that I've talked to. One of the things that's interesting to think about is how, you know, let's talk about future generations. And so if we think about our kids, and someday they'll have kids, they will parent much different than we do today. And a lot of that parenting will be influenced by their experience in the world. So when we think about things like social media, their activity on social media, um, the importance of image potentially on social media will shape who they are in the future, their values, uh, how, what kind of work they pursue, and so forth, that will influence their parenting style. Um, which could look very much different than our parenting style, let's say, you know, general, um, maybe older millennials and Gen X parent much differently. So um, what's really interesting to think about is how future generations or how our kids that are being raised today will eventually parent uh, going forward. And that's the thing that I think starts to show some level of shift in how family structures work, how parenting happens, how there tends to be some waves in relation to how parents learn from their own personal experience when they were growing up, take a lot of the kind of pains and struggles and and observations and new values that were developed during that point in time in society and apply that to their parenting style. And we'll start to see that shift, which will create a new generation of, of people beyond Gen Z, of course, um, that will be quite different. Um, so that's the kind of things we can expect and really thinking about how the experience our kids especially have today will shape their parenting of the future. It makes you think a little differently about um, kind of the impact of the things that our kids experience today. Do you think the cat and mouse game of technology where the kids can tend to be ahead of their parents, which makes it even harder to shelter where appropriate and limit or just frame the experiences that they're having. Do you think that that will ever reach a point where the parents can catch up <laughs> and they won't be blind to the way that the kids are being exposed to things that maybe they wouldn't want them to be? I can't speak to whether we're going to be always a step behind. Maybe I can say, I can speak to this. Like I can think about my parents, right? So like 10 years ago, my parents knew zero about technology. Right. They were calling me about, I can't get my laptop to start. And, you know, just little things like my mom, oh, this is kind of funny. My mom for years thought that your email was related to the actual device you used. And so he, she said, I sent my email from my phone instead of I sent my email from my laptop or from my home computer. And even if she used the same email address, she couldn't connect the fact that the email actually was being stored and transferred through servers that weren't in her device. And now, so that was interesting. But now we call her techie grandma. So she's got, you know, an iPad. She's got her iPhone. She's got a laptop. She's got um, a desktop computer. And she's relatively tech savvy. Um, she's using Zoom uh, like a champ. <laughs> you know, we use we use Zoom every Sunday with our families. We have across four locations. I say my family, which would be my kind of nuclear family, I guess. My parents, my sister in Colorado, 
uh, my nephew in Florida, and then us here in Indiana, we play a game called Five Crowns card game. And we play over Zoom every Sunday, and she does fantastically well. Um, So I think that we start to learn and evolve over time, but we're usually a little bit behind the eight ball. And usually those younger generations who have more time, more focus, and more drive, I think, to learn those new technologies and really engage their friends with those new technology may always be, let's say, a step ahead. And I think that I'm fairly tech savvy at this point, but who knows what it's going to look like in the next 10 years when I'm really starting to have to be aware of what my kids are and are not interacting with. Do you think that there are certain things that are going to make the family dynamic, like we're focused on the kids and again, ultimately how that could affect their communication, but high level for the family dynamic, are there things you see down the road that could make parenting or overall family easier? Oh gosh, parenting being easier. Um, I don't know that parenting will get easier. I think that no matter what happens in relation to how easy we try to make our lives in relation to the the tasks that we need to achieve or the decisions that we need to make, right? Those things might become easier. Parenting is something that's inherently human, but also inherently very personal. There's a different type of connection or bond you you typically build uh, with your kids um, that is much different than kind of other experiences that we have. Um, there's a potential, you know, we've already seen it in some families and I'll give some examples like for instance, um, video game addiction. So video game addiction is becoming more and more prevalent and unfortunately has seen a little bit of a spike now in our, in the pandemic world. Um, that video game, um, addiction can highly disrupt families, um, to, a you know, a very large extent, that type of, um, you know, technology use can certainly disrupt how families operate. But that's really kind of an individualized family perspective rather than broader. Um, So I think there probably will be trends in how parenting happens or always have been like, for instance, I'll give you a good example. So I'm a, you know, a Gen Xer, right, grew up in what I call the get over it generation. Mm-hmm. So when we were kids, we were bullied or, you know, whatever. So our, our sister hit us in the car. Yeah, that did happen. So I'm a little bitter. But, <laughs> you know, we, our, our parents would just tell us to get over it. And it, you know, nobody ever really, you know, did much to really redirect. Even in schools and so forth, it just was everybody was told to just get over it. Well, that changed with the millennial generation as parents become more aware of the impact of those types of behaviors, um, gave their kids the tools they needed to empower themselves to say, hey, it's not okay to bully. For instance, get putting a lot of structure and rules in place in school environments that made bullying um, out of bounds and really changed the dynamic towards how you approach bullies, how bullying is handled, and how it's tolerated. Um, that did influence the millennial generation and continues to influence the Gen Z generation in somewhat of a different way, just because they're another generation removed from those implementation of those types of um, structures. But, but yeah, I mean, thinking, thinking back of, you know, how families behave or how families operate. I mean, I'm not an expert in that area, but I can say, sure, you know, we can definitely expect to see some level of shift. Um, but I believe or, you know, of course, inherently hope that, um, you know, as far as from a human perspective, we continue to have a bond with our kids in a way that's uh, much different than the relationships we hold with other people. 
You mentioned, of course, the quarantines and we're still in the middle of it. So it's anybody's guess what the new normal is going to be. But looking at the hard part, I think it falls into what you've mentioned as far as additional screen time, obviously less human contact with people other than your family, but maybe on the positive side, more family time. Hopefully that's being spent in a productive way. And I think we're going to hit work from home being another thing that's clearly going to be looked at. So maybe one thing that's making parenting easier, air quotes, right, is having a little bit more time from a work-life balance standpoint. What do you think that that might look like as we learn our lessons from the COVID issue? Right. And I really do think this comes down to individual family dynamics and circumstance. So a lot of people have gained a lot of time back. Um, So for instance, if you're a commuter, you may have gotten a lot of time back in your day simply because you don't have to commute to work. That um, is time that people appreciate back. They can spend that time potentially with their kids or get those chores done around the house um, that now they're staring at all day long. (laughs) Um, But there's other families that are are experiencing something tremendously different. So if you're a healthcare worker, you may have been quarantined from your family. Or you might work be working extensively long hours under very difficult circumstances. Uh, the stress that healthcare workers have right now um, is tremendous. And as we know, based on just research from stress-induced um, or work-induced stress, people do tend to bring that home. It does disrupt families and family life and family structures. And we all, you know, kind of heard, you know, it's like the old expression that, you know, you you have a bad day at work, you come home and kick your dog. Um, That, you know, obviously I love dogs, don't kick your dog. (laughs) But I mean, that was just an expression. But, um, But people do bring that stress home. People do feel depression. People do feel impacted by this point in time. Some people are highly extroverted, for instance, and really get their energy from being around other people and are struggling right now. And that can also impact families in interesting ways. And so it really just comes down to the individual family, the family members and how they're impacted by this point in time and their circumstances. And what I know your finance, the the finance stuff. (laughs) people who um, are losing their jobs. And there's a completely another dynamic that that needs to be considered as well as how that's impacting uh, people and families, um, because that's another level of stress that's very difficult to to maintain. Do you think that once we're through the initial phases and knock on wood, hopefully jobs come back relatively similar to what we're used to, but possibly there's more flexibility that then will strike a bit of a balance, relieving some of the tension that we're feeling now or probably too close to call or too early to call. Yeah, it's really interesting. I can say that there's some things I think that we can probably project or um, presume might happen, of, you know, in just in more general terms, more people are going to work from home. And that was already happening before the pandemic hit. The thing that happened now is that we've been able to test our infrastructure. So companies have been able to test their remote work infrastructure to see if they can handle it. In most cases, that's worked pretty well. So yeah, more remote work will happen. So for instance, Twitter just came out over the last few days. Um, 
that they are going to indefinitely allow their workers to work remotely, um, and which is um, a huge shift and probably a big influencer to other companies that are considering making similar shifts. Um, and then when you kind of circle back about how this will impact people and families and structures like that, um, there's going to be new behaviors and new patterns that start to emerge out of this. Things will become normal that weren't as normal in the past. Some of those things are going to be good. Uh, so the way we connect with one another, the way we value connection, I think a little bit differently now in general than we did. That's a good shift. The fact that people feel more flexibility or they feel better about the fact, you know, sometimes their lives kind of intermesh, like kind of bleed together a little bit. In the past, that was super stressful. You know, you want to always have that kind of very clear line and definition between your work and home life. And that line for a lot of people is somewhat evaporated. Um, that's, I think, good thing because then people can think more critically about what's important right now at this moment. It might be my kids. It might be my kids need help with their e-learning. And I'm sorry, you know, people at work, you're going to have to hold on for me to have this deliverable because I need to help my daughter right now. You mentioned being part of the Gen X generation. I think another nickname that was given was the latchkey generation, right? And there's an example too that, hey, if you have a job that's flexible enough where you can go and pick your kid up from their bus stop and bring them home and spend a little bit of time while your spouse is finishing up whatever they're doing or whatever the situation happens to be, that's great. You know, that that's some flexibility that goes a long way. And then if you can make that up sometime later in the day or earlier in the day or whatever fits into your schedule, all the better. So I'm hopeful that that's where some of the pluses will really come as work from home becomes more common and more, I don't want to say accepted, but understood. That flexibility, especially for the family unit, will be a really, really big thing. Well, let me ask you this, for people in the suburbs, I found it interesting that my neighbors, if I'm walking or running down the street, maybe 50% would wave at me or say hello now, because I think people are really yearning for it. Everybody is giving a nod of the head or some sort of a wave. And we're even doing social distancing at the end of your driveway, have a happy hour drink at the end of the day and, and wave. And the suburbs in particular have sometimes been knocked for the fact that you live far enough apart from each person that you don't even really know the people that you live amongst. Do you have any thoughts for how COVID is going to change or not change how people live as far as suburbs versus country versus city living? That's a super interesting question. Um, I think that there was a trajectory prior to the pandemic. And some of this is just based on, I guess, a lot of futurist opinions about where the future is headed. A lot of them were thinking city centers, city centers, potentially offshore city centers for environmental reasons, that more and more people would gravitate towards those city centers because of things like autonomous vehicles really kind of taking over how we um, get to from point A to point B and the different ways that kind of work may happen in the future. 
Um, but that's before anyone ever experienced a global pandemic. And here we are now. So I think we think forward about, you know, how will this impact the existence of suburbs? It's definitely, I think, almost too soon to say, or at least from my perspective, I can't, I can't even answer the question, but I think it's an interesting one because I think it will potentially change or shift the way people think about where they live. And a lot of people are actually valuing being outdoors and it's really pushed more people out and valuing the outdoors and valuing being out there in nature, which is, by the way, um, important to our well-being. And there's another book. I can give you another book. It's called Nature Fix. And that book in particular is about simply why being in nature is restorative, why it's important to our health and well-being. And what's really interesting is that if we truly are getting that shift of people becoming more, um, I don't know if it's really eco-aware or just really more aware of the benefits of being in nature, um, people will probably look more towards suburban life or rural life um, to get the benefits of, you know, having more more fresh air um, around them. But certainly suburban life, one of the big draws, you mentioned it, is um, the potential for human connection. And some neighborhoods might leverage it and some might not. But you see a lot of suburban communities that have multiple opportunities for people to connect in their neighborhoods, in their communities, um, with um, local um, community opportunities to engage and connect. And like you mentioned, we're craving it more now than ever. And we recognize the value of it, which is amazing and important for building a better future. So I think that actually makes me kind of optimistic that, you know, people are being more intentional about the connections they create with other people, even if it's just simply a wave. And something that seems funny to me, you mentioned the autonomous vehicles and I would have agreed in the same way that that is an argument for people even more wanting to be in urban settings. Yet another reason you don't need a car of your own. You're close to everything else that's going on as far as work-wise and even other cultural, social events and (laughs) concerts, which who knows what they're going to look like and how they'll get back to some amount of normal. But I've also started to think that that might end up being an argument, autonomous vehicles, that is, for why the suburbs may become more attractive, especially if you get to the point of uh, electric vehicles that are autonomous. So you've got less of a concern about what we're doing to the environment for people's long commutes. Now, the argument there would be that you own an autonomous vehicle more than likely so that you're not sharing these public spaces, which will also be very interesting to see what accommodations happen with mass transit. Um, so very, it, just to, to point that out to show how much the current situation could really affect the future. Uh, again, something that might have been people coming out of the suburbs <laughs> could actually be something that enables them to actually stay out there to get then the benefits that you mentioned as well, that, They've got more space. For example, I'm a runner. And anytime I see an article that says, oh, people are mad at runners or, you know, they can't social distance. And I'm thinking, gosh, I don't see anybody when I go down (laughs) my streets anywhere. Am I really that much of a danger? Then you read the articles and it's, of course, it's a downtown urban setting where, yeah, the sidewalk is probably not enough space to social distance. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting, too, can you mention through there about um, the commute and I think 
more and more, I mean, I think we're just, again, high disruption or with the number of remote workers that we have now and the reality that many of those workers will remain remote through the end of this year, maybe longer. And as companies start to recognize some of the benefits of having a vastly remote workforce, because, you know, it's just cheaper. In many ways, it's cheaper. And you lose some level of, you know, personal connection to some extent and that kind of thing, but less and less people are going to be commuting. And so I think when you look at it from that perspective, if the aspect of the commute starts to diminish for many people, not for everybody, um, but then there's a lot more kind of incentive to say, hey, do I really need to go into an office? And if I don't, why wouldn't I live in the suburbs or why wouldn't I live in a rural place? It's different for different people. Some people love being in the city. But I mean, we're if we're all primarily a suburban audience and, hey, I'm a suburbanite too, you know, I appreciate a little bit of space around me because I just like having some fresh air and maybe some nature that isn't too far away. Even your house in and of itself, I think in most city instances, you're paying a lot more for a smaller space. That may not be true in every single city in the world, but by and large, that is the case. And going back to what we were talking about with the job, I will say for myself, it is nice to have a dedicated space to be able to work out of. It is a a literal symbol for when I step out of that office space in my home into the kitchen or living room area that work needs to stay as work. And then you're moving into home life after that. And it seems like you should be able to switch that off in your brain, but it's sometimes not that easy, especially when your computer is just down the way. And if you're using your kitchen or your living room or dining room as your workspace, because that's all you have for living space, I think that gets exponentially harder. So do you think it maybe could even be another argument for the suburban setup that you can get more bang for your buck in the amount of living space you have so that you can even more separate your work and home life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, but of course I got to throw a little dulcet in reality about, um, you know, there's going to be folks that um, can't afford it. Sure. So, you know, I think one of the things that we need to be mindful of maybe as a society or like if you were like a city planner or something along those lines is thinking about, um, how this impacts socioeconomic lines, because that's a really interesting topic, a really interesting thing to think about is will how will this impact uh, people's standards of living at various levels of the economic scale? Um, some of that will start to influence some of the shift in population from cities, you know, from urban environments to suburban environments or to rural environments and vice versa. You know, I've, you know, people who are losing their jobs may have a shift towards the city simply because there might be more services available to them. But as you mentioned, housing is expensive in the city for the most part, in most cities. Um, and the areas that are not are simply, you know, unfortunately not um, as well equipped to handle uh, widespread unemployment and so forth. So I think there's some reality around that as well. But I mean, I think the benefits to living a suburban life, if you're economically available to do so, are are clear. And I think that will persist for some time. Uh, Certainly, we've 
saw with everything that's gone on in New York, one of the very early things that was pointed out is, hey, if you don't have the economic means, it's probably more likely you've got multiple generations living in the same household, which means you are going to be more prone to passing the disease from a younger person to an older person. And of course, at the very beginning of all this, without even knowing it probably in a lot of cases. So that is definitely a consideration uh, for not just the working part that we're talking about where it is certainly a convenience, but when you shift that over to a health thing, it's a hazard (laughs) that potentially you have to work through and consider. And that actually probably shifts us into one of the other topics that we focus on a lot in our show around health. And when I think of future health, by and large, longevity probably is the main question, right? Like what does life expectancy look like? What are the things that you can do to live a little bit longer than the generation before, um, be a little bit healthier? What is your overall perspective as far as where you think humans are going in the pursuit of continued longevity, hopefully with a good quality of life. Hopefully that's just understood, but <laughs> maybe I'll mention <laughs> that in there too, of like quality of life with longevity. Um, but, but what are your thoughts yet as far as whether it's exercise, diet, just where we're going? Boy, it's a fast, another fascinating topic and really interesting to think about from multiple angles. Um, and I'll just talk about from a kind of like a futurist type perspective first. There are a lot of people who are working very hard to figure out how to lengthen our lifespan, uh, both genetically and medically. And so, um, you know, different types of um, supplements, different types of medication are different types of trials to determine from people who are highly motivated to expand the human lifespan, um, to figure out ways that we can do that through technology, through um, medication, through um, things like health, uh, like, you know, and even just exercise. I mean, exercise is going to be something that benefits anybody, regardless of, you know, who you are, um, you know, what demographic you're, you're in. But, and, and then as well, you know, as healthy diets and so forth. But um, human lifespan, I think, also gets into this interesting area about how long, it's like kind of the ethical stuff or the deeper conversation about how long should people live. Is it make sense for us to think about people who live indefinitely? Like, would you want to live 200 years? Like, I can't personally say that I feel great about the fact that maybe I'll just continue to live on for 200 years. Um, I don't know what the impact that, you know, that's going to have on the world, on the environment, on society. Um, What's the, you know, like you said, the quality of life. What will my quality of life be? And as medication, medical care continues to improve, um, it's an interesting question because we've also seen some level of unexpected declines in some populations of people uh, on life expectancy because of environmental issues or other things. Um, and now, again, global pandemic hits and changes the game to some extent. And even just like recently, last couple of days, you start to read articles and news stories about new conditions that are COVID related that people are starting to develop. And a lot of doctors are scratching their head and trying to figure out what does this mean? What's the long-term impact of this? And are these new populations of people we need to think about protecting now? Um, interesting questions. But when you talk about lifespan in particular, I almost want to believe that there's a lot of kind of um, 
technical or scientific reasons why we can expand the lifespan that people have. Um, and I almost think it kind of becomes more of a ethical conversation about what would be the right thing to do for society and for individuals in relation to how much we decide to expand our personal lifespan. How about diets in particular with COVID bringing yet another item to light? (laughs) We've seen the uh, meat production go down by quite a bit because of the factories that process such things have had some outbreaks. Do you think that that would be something that would really bring up different ways of farming or processing meat? Or is that going way far to that example? Get us to the thing where people start to drop meat altogether. Any thoughts there as far as where diet fits in and future? Yeah. And then some of this was already in motion prior to the pandemic. And now I believe what we're experiencing today will accelerate those other protein sources in general. One being kind of um, lab-created meats. And as crazy as that sounds, um, people are able to or are on the path of creating meat um, through science. And, you know, we'll leave it in the need for livestock in those cases. And we've got other, you know, kind of opportunities for getting protein. And we're thinking about it very differently now than we think in the past. So we all, a lot of us enjoy a good steak, you know, or enjoy, you know, chicken or whatever your meat of choice is. Um, But from a protein perspective, we need to think very differently about what we need to survive. Um, The reality is, is that with the growing um, population on the world, it's not realistic for us to be able to expect that beef consumption can continue on its current path because there'll be too many people and we can't sustain that level of um, cattle, uh, you know, on, on the earth. So other protein sources will continue to emerge. Our current circumstance will certainly, I believe, accelerate those other solutions or make people more amenable to those types of solutions, such as lab created meats, which are not necessarily at wide scale, obviously today, but certainly people are focusing on getting those things available to market. Um, And then other protein sources such as, you know, plant-based proteins. And so if you think about the Impossible Burger, that um, was kind of all the rage, (laughs) you know, the last several months uh, for a while. And that was, you know, I think the tension has shifted elsewhere now. But um, those types of proteins, people are becoming more amenable to those things. The other thing that people are thinking about more and more, and sorry if you're squeamish, but uh, bug-based proteins. And so um, a lot of folks looking into the possibility of mass producing bug-based proteins uh, because they're cheap, um, they're highly nutritious, and uh, they don't take a lot of farming space. Um, So it's, uh, yeah, those are the things that people already had in motion prior to the pandemic. And I believe those solutions will continue to accelerate, giving people more and more options on how to um, kind of include protein in their diet that may not include the traditional meats of um, the current or the past. It's interesting to compare the Impossible Burger to bugs, right? Because yeah. one of the things that 
non-adopters will say is, well, why are you trying so hard to make non-meat taste like meat? <laughs> like just, hey, why don't you just have meat? Which is kind of where you would say the Impossible Burger is trying to go. Of course, if you've seen any of those initial Whopper commercials, they do the blind taste tests and all of that, as opposed to, of course, bugs. Well, I'm sure there are recipes out there that can make it taste good. Would it be worth the effort to try to trick somebody to say that you're eating a bug hamburger? I'm not sure. I don't know enough about it. But where I'm going with that is, can we, especially in Western culture, shift our mindset enough to say, this is a thing that's edible. This is not a thing that's edible and really get into the data of it. Like you said, around protein, do we have a viable protein option that is not cattle driven, uh, the standard meats that we've had before? Presumably, we probably will. Will it be enhanced as far as the timeline with what we're going through now? I think that there definitely could be an argument for, yes, that it's seen as something else that can't be sustainable and maybe we need to take action sooner than later. And it's, uh, yeah, there's so many things that impact so many different people. And one of the things that I think um, is really interesting that needs to be a huge part of the conversation is the farmers themselves. Um, because right now, I mean, the farming industry is, um, is under a high amount of disruption. They were already, right, beyond just the fact that the dairy industry was seeing a steep decline. And, um, you know, a lot of um, meat consumption was under question. And they've had to kind of logistically, I think, battle these other protein sources that were kind of evolving or potentially meeting the market. Um, now we're in a different situation where meatpacking plants have to think about um, how many people they can have in their facilities safely in order to process meat that we need in our grocery stores so that we can purchase it and bring it home and feed our families. Um, you know, I don't think that we've meet, met the tipping point just yet, but could we meet the tipping point? Yeah, we could totally hit the tipping point. I mean, it's just one, again, when you think about this from a futurist perspective, um, there's this thing we call foresight, which basically means we project forward potential trends based on you know things that have happened in the past or things that are happening today. And usually there's multiple different paths this could go. And that's true now, of course, more than ever, um, you know, it has been. But if we think forward about that potential trajectory, meat becomes unavailable our family still needs protein. This is true of um, vegetarians, um, you know, today or anybody who is, um, you know, kind of doesn't eat meat. Uh, they have to find protein too. You know, there's other protein sources we're going to have to consider because from a nutrition perspective, we need protein to be healthy. And so if it came down to it, Greg, <laughs> and the only protein available to feed your kids was bug protein. Now, I'm not saying this is ever going to happen, by the way. I don't want to like put this into a dystopian place because that's not my intention whatsoever. But I think it makes you think differently about, you know, what do I need to survive? And if it really comes down to that point and bug protein is what I have available to feed my family and it's affordable and it keeps us healthy, um, more people are going to become amenable to it. Of course, there's always going to be those people that really love a good steak, but also the farmers and stuff that are really going to struggle um, through any potential transition around meat consumption. I mean, there's other, you know, there's other farming industries, of course, we could talk about too, but um, I think the demand will meet the supply um, and, and eventually at some points in time, uh, we'll really get down to what do we need to live, uh, which I think a lot of us kind of felt 
those first several days of the pandemic, when people started rushing the grocery store, it wasn't just about toilet paper being missing. Um, a lot of staples were missing too, because people were buying them up, you know, afraid they wouldn't, wouldn't have what they actually needed uh, to survive and feed their families. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see if anything like that happens to, to the extent that we've, you know, seen the, in relation to the pandemic, but certainly those shifts will, will continue to happen. And um, the things that we can't predict are often the things that shift society the most. Drawing from my own experience, I remember growing up, we had what you'd probably call the typical American meat and potatoes diet. And it wasn't actually until I met my wife, frankly, <laughs> that I ever tried sushi. And that, and so the reason why I focus on saying Western culture in particular, I'm not well-versed on what cultures eat what things, but there are certainly people in the world that are already eating bugs as part of their diet. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like in the billions, like it's not even like, like lots of people right. eat bugs, guys, lots of people. So while our Western minds may say, oh, really, I'm going to feed my family a basket full of crickets for dinner. How in the world could that be possible? And you would call it a dystopian society, like you said, but really you just got to open your mind and step outside of your cultural norms, probably in that case, to uh, uh, see what the possibilities actually are. The, the really, I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that those societies that eat bugs today, they've been eating, eating bugs for a long, long time as part of their culture. For us, it would be a tremendous culture shift. And that's where you really have the difference between those societies have been eating bugs for years and folks like us in the U.S. that have been very sheltered from that um, and would have a harder time with that transition. You mentioned farmers. And let's Use that as an example for a major concern around jobs for anybody, right? Um, and actually, spoiler alert, uh, once uh, the show, your show comes out what, that I was on, I mentioned one of my main worries is whenever there is more automation, we've always had jobs behind it to fix <laughs> the, the jobs that were lost are we ever going to get to a point where the machine can fix the machine, so to speak? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Again, you're giving some of the examples of the farmers and they could have shifts depending on how our food consumption has to change. Looking more broadly, what do you think the job world looks like as we progress into the future, in particular with technology? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the things that um, people are battling with more and more now is being very realistic about uh, the the experience of work in people's lives. And beyond just the fact that it gives us money, um, there's a purpose behind it and a feeling of belonging and meaning behind our work, typically. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have jobs they don't like. <laughs> and I'm not necessarily talking about that scenario, like, oh, my God, I'm in this job because I want to feed my family and I really just hate my job. Um, more people in that circumstance than um, than maybe, you know, should be for, for, for multiple reasons. But that aside, um, if you take that kind of purpose and meaning behind work, especially if you look at farming, where usually, in many cases, farming is a family career that has been in the family for sometimes generations. And being a farmer and not being able to continue down that path moving forward is has a significant impact on that 
experience, that feeling, that purpose, that motivation, that drive that they had. I mean, it's a part of their who they were. I mean, it could become somewhat um, a part of their identity if it was really kind of ingrained in the work that their family has done for generations. Um, it's not as simple as replacing that work with different work. So um, that's where that kind of human experience part becomes really important. And so what's really interesting now, too, is more and more people about are thinking about, you know, uh, you know, basic income. And so we, a lot of people received stimulus checks, for instance, in relation to the pandemic um, and compared that to kind of universal basic income potential for the future. And so you heard a lot of Andrew Yang was right, <laughs> you know, and things like that. But it's, it's a complicated issue. It goes beyond the fact that people need money to be able to get what they need for their families. There's purpose and meaning behind work that is difficult sometimes to replace with different work. And as those types of jobs are, you know, potentially discriminated, you know, um, I'm sorry, the word just escaped me, um, diminished. You know, it's not as simple as replacing it with different work. Instead, we need to think about what's meaningful to the to folks, what really drives them to move forward, what's their purpose, and how do you connect that purpose to the work that they're doing? And so they can feel like they're contributing to the world, to society, to an industry, and so forth. A lot of people, of course, like I said, lack that connection with their work today. But for some of the work that will be highly disrupted by technology uh, moving forward or by the evolution of society or, or different ways of growing food even, um, it's interesting to think about how do you help those workers. One of the parallels you can draw, of course, is coal mining, coal mining industry, because those workers also um, built around community. They have communities that were built around coal mining. And that's one reason why a lot of politicians, I think, wanted to try to protect those communities. The reality is, is that coal mining and coal production and coal energy um, is not something that's sustainable in the long term. Um, but it's very difficult to approach these communities and say, hey, this thing that's been a part of your community that's built your community that you're doing, your grandparents have done, their, their parents did before them, um, is not going to be a thing anymore. That's not an easy thing for people to process. Um, so really focusing on how you help those um, communities transition to work that's meaningful, purposeful, that they feel good about, that they can build a new legacy behind is critically important um, to moving forward into the future. And that's where that human experience perspective is super important to think about. The problem may be here quicker because of what has happened than it otherwise would have been. Restaurants are obviously one of the primary areas that are being hit. And hey, almost everybody can think of a family-owned and operated restaurant in their town. And of course, it's always all over the news that these are the small businesses that are really going to have a hard time weathering the storm. And is it possible that even the loans that they've gotten and so on won't be enough to sustain them? So the legacy that you're talking about, with that as an example, we could see the impact now, um, not even from a technology standpoint. So will be, unfortunately, maybe something that we see an example of sooner than later. And you're right. I'm one of those people that said, I bet Andrew Yang is saying, man, <laughs> the timing of all this was just a little bit off. <laughs> I hate to say I told you so. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was tremendously help helpful to a lot of families. And I'll say that. And I'm not saying Andrew Yang was wrong. I just saying that 
that it's co- it's a complicated issue that isn't just simply right. solved by transferring money or transferring a type of work. But you're right. Like, yeah, the re- restaurant industry, goodness gracious. I know a lot of people um, locally. Well, actually, I know one person in particular who had a very thriving restaurant business that um, had to shut down his business, um, his restaurants, just recently, just in the last several days. And it was shocking to see, but not surprising. From a lessons learned standpoint, people just need to be very aware and see how that will play out and yeah, and take those lessons into the future as potentially other uh, industries or areas become less viable uh, depending on where, where society goes. Another industry uh, and an area that we focus on is travel that we have no idea what it's going to look like. It seems like at this point, what are your thoughts at this point as far as where we go from here and how is that different than what you thought travel was going to look like before this pandemic? So uh, yeah, everything's disrupted. I got to say this real quick because it's really interesting. Every day I find a new example of an industry that was disrupted that I never thought about. (laughs) <laughs> and one of them, this one of them was is funny because this is Mother's Day related. Because my mom loves puzzles, and I wanted to get her puzzles. And one of the industries I found that was highly disrupted was puzzle making. <laughs> it was hard to get puzzles shipped to her. Um, but yeah, but travel was one of those. So I think before the pandemic happened, and this isn't just things that I thought about. Things a lot of people thought about in relation to the future is the um, impact of widespread travel and in, in uh, growing population on the environment. And um, now we're like game changed because we see, physically can see cities like Los Angeles resolve their smog in a short amount of time and realize the impact of reduced travel on the environment. And a lot of other people see that and see that as an advantage, not even just people, but companies, or even just think about business travel. A lot of companies are thinking differently about business travel now, especially when their remote, their workforce is gone largely remote. So when you have a lot of people from a work perspective um, or from a corporate perspective traveling a bit less, which I think would be the trend uh, because of the global um, remote workforces that have been developed because of the pandemic, um, travel will reduce from that perspective. When you look at it, travel from a, a recreation perspective, uh, I think it'll be a mixed bag. It depends on how passionate people are about travel. I know people who are itching to go places, but they want to do it when it's safe. So assuming that we eventually um, have the ability to venture out into the world in different places safely, um, then I think that that recreational travel does start to um, you know, reestablish to some extent. I do believe it looks differently now than it, than it did in the past. And I believe there will still be a re- reduction in the amount of traveling happening uh, because people become more and more comfortable with, uh, you know, technology to connect with people around the world, especially from a business context. It'll almost be a good litmus test for where somebody's priorities lie, right? So you mentioned business travel as compared to recreational travel. You wonder what's going through the head of the person that is doing their business travel, but then let's say is nervous to travel for vacation or they just do staycations or some version that restricts it. I think from a business perspective, um, usually cost is king. So 
as companies start to realize how much money they're saving from not sending people to conferences and not sending people to remote offices or different affiliates across the world, uh, regardless of what your industry or business is, um, the businesses are probably going to make a very financial decision about the fact that they don't have to do it, I would guess. Um, and so, but I think from a recreational perspective, there's lots of benefits. There's a lot of inherent benefits of that, um, that you can't get virtually, virtually, no matter how how hard you try. (laughs) No VR environment is going to put you at the side of the Grand Canyon in the same way as if you were experiencing it in person. Yeah, absolutely. And Hey, maybe we can combine some of these ideas to say the flexibility of remote work and consideration for the environment. Maybe people can go to different parts of the world and stay there for a couple of weeks and really experience the culture and yeah. some of those things rather than, hey, I got a week and I got to use that for my vacation. That would really be a best of both worlds that you're not moving around as much for your vacation and you really, really get to experience some other cultures and gain some new perspective. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying if I could paint a brush, maybe that would be a way to, to solve some uh, some of these issues that are coming about. Absolutely. And I'd say like it's kind of going back to what I said before, where people start to see kind of like their personal life and work life start to bleed. I would see our bleed together. I think that that would be one of the things you might see. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. So great, great job becoming a futurist there, Greg. <laughs> Thank you very much. I caught my podcast is, is successful. <laughs> well, let me hit you with one more question. This is going to go back to the parenting part. What do you foresee for schools? I won't put you on the spot about the near term because again, anybody knows, obviously every area is different at the moment, but do you think that what we have established for online learning is going to gain steam just as an effective way to educate people? Or do you think that it's really going to go by the wayside and there's enough holes in it that we're really going to go back to kind of the face-to-face model? Yeah. And this was actually one of my guests on the on my podcast, um, actually is an expert in this area and this technology. I can speak kind of a little bit to some of the insights he provided, but also just based on my experience just through homeschooling and the fact, to, you know, two out of my four kids have special needs and have had to have IEPs. So anyone who has special kids with special needs in the school and had IEPs, I give you a high five and give you a hug all at the same time because I, I feel your pain. Um, but I think one of the things we start to learn out of this experience as everybody has needed to go virtual um, is the importance of individualized education, the importance of understanding that different kids learn differently. And so some kids are thriving in this environment. Like my 13-year-old loves it. She absolutely loves the fact that she can knock out her work pretty much in the morning um, and then have the rest of her day to do whatever she wants, whether it be YouTube videos or go outside and take a walk. Um, My 11-year-old struggles, struggles a lot with e-learning. One reason why is because she really misses the connection she had with other kids playing in the playground and things like that. So she's really having a hard time with it. But if you think about from an educational perspective, simply from an educational perspective, some kids have a very difficult time focusing on content that's online versus somebody working directly with them. And a lot of kids, especially those kids with disabilities that were working very closely with educators that were guiding them through their learning and giving them a lot of support, if they're missing that right now, uh, those kids are struggling and falling behind. And so I think one of the things we start to learn more and more is the importance of making sure 
that the learning environment matches the the needs of the child, um, you know, in how they learn and the needs that they have in relation to making that learning effective. There are already kind of laws and structures in place to make sure all of the kids have access to a learning environment uh, that um, helps, you know, kind of move them along and give them the education they're afforded to, especially here in the U.S. by law. Um, and as we think about, you know, virtual learning in particular, yeah, I think there'll be more um, applications of virtual learning, but I think there'll also be more awareness of the importance of of understanding each child's needs in relation to their learning so that they don't fall behind. One point that I would also emphasize about giving children the time to focus on the things that they want to. We actually did an episode specifically on homeschooling and uh, my guest had mentioned that it makes the act of learning <laughs> not as painful <laughs> when you're when the child's actually getting to learn things that they want to. Sure, you've got to get through the certain math, science, reading, so on. But if you can do that in the minimum amount of hours and then they have the ability to dedicate more time to what actually holds their interest, then the term learning <laughs> may not be a negative term. So there could even be a benefit to that and that flexibility that we might see. Absolutely, because there's actually been research. I mean, just on people, let's say people in general, if people find something interesting, they can better focus on that thing and are more driven, have an intrinsic motivation to learn the thing. They really want to, and that really is a differentiator. There's been multiple studies in education and in work um, and really in life in relation to people being able to focus on those things that interest them. Um, And there's, there's even a lot of kind of European educational models that follow that path and really giving kids that opportunity to pursue the things that are very interesting to them um, and drive their education from that perspective. Um, Also giving them more opportunities for hands-on learning um, has been a highly effective manner, you know, thing thing for kids as well in those European models. Um, But yeah, I mean, um, I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that kids can pursue different interests and things now. It's just like my daughter, even earlier today, she said, can I take a break from my schoolwork for a minute? Because I would really love to be able to learn about this other thing I saw um, online. I want to check it out. And I said, absolutely, go for it. Um, So, you know, what might have been seen as supplemental learning before, I think really just kind of, again, bleeds kind of into the typical curriculum that kids um, have had um, from public schools, maybe. And, um, gives them more different types of opportunities to learn new things they're interested in. Which, hey, if the point of school is to figure out what you want to do with your life, that seems like a good way to uh, allow them the ability to do that and find out what it is that they're passionate about. Rebecca, like I mentioned, we could probably talk about this all day. I was super excited to have this conversation. You didn't disappoint. So (laughs) do you want to go ahead and give our audience your contact information Uh, where they can find you for your podcast as well as for your company, Vivid Spring? Absolutely. So the podcast is humansnowandthen.com or Humans Now and Then. You can find it on your favorite streaming platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the other ones, I believe. (laughs) Um, It's out there. So Humans Now and Then or, again, humansnowandthen.com. Um, for my company. So I do also have a consulting company called Vivid Spring, and that is primarily leadership uh, consulting as well as public speaking and workshops to help 
uh, prepare workforces for the future and also to help keep them engaged and motiv- motivated towards the work they're doing um, in their jobs. So, and also, um, you know, I really just want people to think about their own agency and helping to shape the future. So is there anything you heard today that we talked about that's important to you? Get involved in the conversation about the future because you can and you should. So um, I hope I hope you do that. And plus, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I always have a lot of fun talking yeah, about it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so well, again, Rebecca, I appreciate you taking the time to join the show today. We'll put all of your information in the show notes for people to get in contact with you and check out the show. It is certainly worth a listen. I appreciate it. And we'll be in touch. Hey, thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.